Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is the Verdis Group co-founder and elected official with the Omaha Public Power District Board of Directors, Craig Moody. Our conversation is being recorded together, but physically distanced, outside Craig Moody's home in Midtown Omaha. You may hear the odd lawnmower, car, or dog bark. Craig Moody is the managing principal and co-owner of Verdis Group, a sustainability consulting firm based in Omaha, working with some of Nebraska's largest employers, including the Omaha Public Schools, the Nebraska Medical Center, Omaha's Henry Dawley Zoo, and Methodist Health Systems. Craig acknowledges the existence of anthropologically caused climate change. Craig was also elected to the Omaha Public Power District Board of Directors in the November 2016 election and currently serves as the chair of the board. Craig is a husband and father of two girls, a transplant from South Dakota to Omaha, and was an organ donor for his brother. Craig, welcome to the show. Stuart, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks and welcome to your me. own home. Indeed, it's it's a beautiful night sitting out here, so this is a pleasure. Could you describe Verdis Group and what it does? So Verdis Group, we started in 2009. Uh, it's, it's myself and Daniel Aussie are the co-owners, and we are a sustainability consultancy. Uh, so first question, what is sustainability? We look at it, you know, the definition and the way that we defined it in 2009 is very different than the way that it's defined today. Uh, in 2009, you know, it could be kind of intertwined with a going green effort, um, finding ways for an organization to go green, to recycle more is probably the most commonly understood way that people think about sustainability and going green. But it also included what we what we really define as operational sustainability. So that's energy efficiency, water efficiency, waste reduction, uh, efforts related to transportation so that we're mitigating and reducing emissions from the tailpipe of your car. Uh, but it was really helping organizations in ways reduce their impact on the environment. The definition has greatly expanded since then. Um, we are now looking to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals as kind of the litmus test for how people are defining sustainability. And it encompasses so much more than just the environmental side of it. It's really about how do, how do we create a society that is just, uh, that is resilient, that is thriving, that um, works for everyone. So it's well beyond the operational sustainability that we had before. And it, it's absolutely going to, you know, a far greater list of topics that are important for us to consider. So for us, what that means is, and the way that this is works in practice, is our work really kind of falls into two pieces from a sustainability standpoint. The first is we plan for large organizations. So we help really large organizations like those that you listed in the intro. And then, you know, we're doing national work at this point. So we help these really large organizations put together a plan for how they're going to be more sustainable into the future. And that, that can be the operational stuff, but it's increasingly migrating to, you know, often re really it's about climate action plans at this point. It's, it's identifying ways in which 
organizations, cities, universities can mitigate their impact on the climate, can uh, sort of course correct towards a more sustainable path, and exploring all the issues that go along with that, uh, uh, which is to say, you know, for some city work that we're doing, we're wrapping up a project with the city of Lincoln, it's housing, it's transportation, it's, it's racial justice. It, there's just so much that wraps into it. So we don't just let it be just about emissions. It, it encompasses so much more. So there's a planning side to our work. And then the other side of our work is very much about implementation. So some of those organizations you mentioned in the intro, OPS, Methodist Health Systems, University of Nebraska Medical Center, we've been working with them for you know, anywhere from seven to 10 years, the plan is done. Now it's time to make it happen. Uh, and that's honestly, for me, probably more exciting because a, a good plan is important, but let's go do some stuff. Let's get a few things done. Let's see what the effects of that are. Let's, let's really kind of get after it. And that, that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a person that's biased towards action. So you mentioned a component of a definition of sustainability, including what does it mean to have a just society? And you also, in uh, your comments, referenced the breadth of what sustainability can encompass, also including, for example, elements of um, racial justice, for yes. example. And I'm wondering if you're able to provide some kind of example about how that has shown up in yeah. some of the work that you've been doing for sure. clients. The first thing that I would point to is the fact that the negative implications of pollution, of emissions, of um, you know, a, an unsustainable land development pattern that spreads all of us out and really favors wealthy people, uh, those that you know, can easily afford a car, a lot of these things, the negative impacts are more pronounced on communities of color. Plenty of data around that, and that is, that is, that is an undeniable truth um, that that we should not be arguing about. Uh, so, so the reality will be, you know, coal plants, as an example, to generate electricity to be placed closer to communities of color. Again, that's a known fact that that's m more common to be there than in a suburb of Omaha where it's more affluent and, and, and white. So there, the environmental justice and the racial justice systems are inextricably connected and and so a big part of what you know we're interested in is exploring that a bit further. To be clear, it's it's complicated, right? Like systemic racism has been around for far too long and is a topic that is extraordinarily complicated but demands action. Uh, and so I think we're really interested in can we make a meaningful impact so that we can start to address these systems of racism as well.
So you mentioned um, a climate action plan, and I'm wondering what is your sense of the appetite in the Midwest and even across the country for specific substantial actions to tackle that? And to put that in a little more pointed context, we have a presidential election on November 3rd this year. Yes. And the day after that, is when the United States is due to exit the Paris Climate Accord. Right, right. Yeah. So we seem in some ways to be going backwards. Yeah. Do we have an appetite to, to really take action steps yeah. and what are those steps? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that after the election of 2016, we, we had a pretty fascinating conversation. We were kind of shell-shocked as, as, you know, many progressives were, I suppose, and we're all pretty universally progressives on the team. But we really wondered, like, is this is this something that's just going to drag everything down? And the inverse happened. What we found is that those organizations, corporations, universities, cities, those that um, saw the federal government essentially leaving the space and going the opposite direction, they said, you know what? Be gone. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to double down. We're going to increase our efforts. We're going to go faster. We're going to go farther. We're going to... We're making bolder commitments. Uh, so we've we've seen, you know, especially the corporate community really lean into this in a way that pre-16, um, I think they were much more passively um, showing up in the space and, and in some ways sort of waiting for the federal government to take a lead, waiting for Congress to take a lead. Uh, 2019 for us was the best year we've ever had. And a big part of that was due to the f- two things. One is our work grew nationally. So we're doing work in Minneapolis and Seattle and Dallas and Salem, Oregon now. So, and, and there's more of that that's going to happen. And corporate Omaha leaned in. Uh, we're doing work with, you know, some of the largest companies in Omaha now, First National Bank, Mutual of Omaha. And that's been a really meaningful shift as well. And, and once the corporate community really decided and concluded, and, you know, there are some corporations that were early to the game and others that are getting to it a little bit later. Hey, it's a party. Everybody come. I don't care when you arrive, but let's get let's get together and have some fun and do some things. So I think the important question, though, I'm gonna I'm not gonna answer the second part, but I, I think what we're really curious about and, and what we're trying to shape now is what does it look like post pandemic? I think that's a fascinating question that um, you know in my view the pandemic has disrupted everything. And if we don't take a step back and really ask ourselves, how can we create a new normal that is just, that is sustainable, that is resilient, that is thriving, and then just go out and do it, then we've missed an immense opportunity. So other than justice, are there one or two innovations that are on your bucket list of what would be included in this new normal? Oh, that's a good question, Stuart. I mean, I, uh, I'm trying to think about it in systems, I suppose. And I think one of, the, one of the systems that's going to be affected the most is the transportation system. The prevalence of people working from home permanently post-pandemic is going to increase rather dramatically. We've, we've read story after story about, you know, organizations who have decided we're cutting our lease, we're done, we're just going to have everybody work from home permanently. Uh, and transportation systems are, are connected 
very directly to you know land use patterns and and how we decide how land gets used uh, so those are two pieces that I'm really fascinated by and interested in how they're going to evolve and how transit you know will change what does it mean when organizations no longer prioritize people being together when they work what does that mean for downtown omaha where that you know from a density standpoint that's the that's the business district you know what does that mean for all the companies the the retail businesses the restaurants um you know the arts venues all of those things so i I just think there's so many questions around that and how this is going to reshape how we work that there's you know sort of a ripple effect into all of these other systems and i think the transportation system is is going to be one of the bigger ones that is a system that by by the way was completely in flux to begin with before this all started with ride sharing and electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles so like at this point who knows what it's going to look like on the back end, which again, because it's so unclear, presents an opportunity for us to really kind of think deliberately about what we want out of it, rather than just waiting for it to, you know, create itself unproductively again. Tell me about the motivations okay. that built up to you deciding, yeah. yeah, I want to be an entrepreneur and launch this company. There, there are probably a few things that played into it. One, one honestly, was a healthy dose of ignorance. I'm a, I'm a, you know, I was a business major, finance, I have an MBA, but the reality was I didn't really know what I was doing. Fortunately so, because I'm not sure, knowing what I know now, whether or not I would have started the business, because it's a hell of a lot of work, and it's gut-wrenching sometimes. So we didn't really know what we were getting ourselves into, quite honestly, um, thankfully. Obviously, you know, we were both motivated by the need to um, address the climate change issue. Um, And quite honestly, it was Al Gore's movie. I mean, as simple as that is to say, like, that was a turning point for me. I kind of had that ethos in me already. You know, my grandmother was uh, the kind of woman who saved every bread bag that she used and cleaned it and reused it. She had, you know, uh, on the back of her closet door handle were no fewer than 375 rubber bands that she would save for who knows what. So like we just were, we were the kind of people who just had that ethos about us. Um, and so that kind of came through and was accelerated by an inconvenient truth. And then I was in a job that I didn't like. And uh, there's nothing that will kind of kick your butt into action than doing something every day that you just really despise doing. Uh, so those things kind of all came together. I had, you know, my wife was uh, perhaps similarly ignorant, but also extraordinarily forgiving and open to the idea. We didn't have any kids at the time, so it was a relatively low risk. If it didn't work, go do something else. Um, I mean, the only semi-challenge to that was that, you know, it was 
2009, kind of early to mid-2009, so we were in the midst of a, the, the recession. Uh, so it was a little bit scary from that standpoint, but again, we it was just my wife and I, and, and she had a steady job, so it wasn't as though we had a huge risk if, if I went a couple months without work. And the reality was we didn't go until we had a, a client. And for us at that point, we were just unbelievably fortunate to come to an agreement with the Omaha Public Schools and to get, you know, OPS as your first client. I mean, we thought we were going to start with, you know, a dentist office here and a florist and like all these kind of little one-offs. And then we started working with OPS and that really kind of set the stage for all the big stuff that would come thereafter. So um, a bit of a trope possibly, but, but what have been the most memorable lessons that you've learned along the way as kind of a, a new entrepreneur and now this is a seasoned business yeah and some of the memorable <laughs> failures too yeah well the best advice that we ignored in the first year without question was as soon as we started uh, our our mentor at the time taylor Keene, said get yourself a good accountant get a good accountant right now first thing you do and i was like I can handle that. I'm in a business grad. I can, I can count. I mean, I can, I can track all the stuff. I got to figure it out. No, mm -mm. that was a terrible idea on my part. I should have listened to him, and it just created so much of a mess thereafter. It was it wasn't a a mess that we couldn't clean up, but it, it just was a really bad idea. Um, you know, I mean, I think the other thing that I would say is that we still look at this as sort of a an experiment. I mean, we are learning every single day about how to successfully run a business and the minute we think we've got it figured out something happens where it's it's just very evident and clear that we don't know what still don't exactly know what we're doing in some cases um and you know some of those are externalities uh and in some cases those are things that we should have predicted and foreseen but i think that mentality has actually served us really well because i think what it means is that we're, you know, we're slow thinking more often. We're not just kind of reacting and responding in the moment. We're stepping back. We're really contemplating and criticizing ourselves and, and, and engaging the team. I mean, I think that's the other thing that I really love the way in which we've created a culture that is extraordinarily transparent, very flat, and no matter who you are, when we have decisions to be made, uh, we engage everybody. We can do that now because there are only there are nine. We're going to add a tenth here in a, in a week, um, so it's not super complicated to involve everyone. When we get two or three times bigger, that might be a bigger challenge to really maintain that ethos. But right now, it it is a big part of who we are. As you know, Daniel and I, we've got some big stuff to figure out. You know, like this pandemic is certainly creating some challenges for us um, and opportunities to be sure. And so. But we engage the team in all of those discussions, and and, uh, and they're intimately involved in shaping our future. And I think that's something that's served us extraordinarily well. It, it's perhaps made it slightly messier because, you know, dictatorships are efficient, so we could just decide things and go. But I think it's inherently made us a lot better as well. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break.
I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is the Verdis Group co-founder and elected official with the Omaha Public Power District Board of Directors, Craig Moody. Could you just give us the kind of highlight reel of what OPPD is and, and does? Yeah, so the Omaha Public Power District is a an electric utility. Uh, that's a it's a public utility, so that means it's not an, an investor-owned utility. It's owned by everybody who lives in the service territory as a public utility. Um, we serve several several hundred thousand customers. The budget is 1.2 billion, so it's a big organization that you know covers 13 counties or parts of 13 counties in the eastern side of the state. And um, it it because it's a public agency, it has an elected board of directors. Uh, there are eight of us that are on the board of directors. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an electric utility uh, who, traditionally speaking, much like any other utility, I suppose, has been kind of a big behemoth, slow to change, that, you know, you, you kind of sh- you inch the Titanic one direction or the other, but it's not going to move very quickly, right? Uh, but th- I think that's that's not the way that it is anymore. Now it's the electric industry, and we can talk more about this, but the electric industry is one that is just transforming at light speed right now. Um and that's not that's definitely not what it was before. So no no pun intended with light speed. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, so there are eight, eight. elected yep. directors. Yep. And you ran uh, for your district's position and were elected in November of 2016. Yep. Why did you run for elected office? You know that's I think that's the most important question that. Anyone who runs for elected office needs to have a solid answer to is why. And if you don't have a solid answer to it, then you're not doing it for the right reasons. So um, with that said, at the time, quite honestly, OPPD, there were a couple decisions that were made by the board that I was not particularly happy with. And so I had a couple people approach me and say, hey, you know, you might be good on this board. You should think about it. And, And I had been approached... Um, you know, quite honestly, about potentially running for office and not in a really concerted way, but people just, you know, it kind of haphazardly mentioned, you know, you'd be really good at this. And for the longest time, my response to that question or that comment was always, thank you. Uh, but I won't, when I spend my day, I want to be doing something that has, that has an impact. I want. I want to be doing something that is affecting change. That is influential. That is. And and I'd never really thought that elected positions were that conduit for me. Were the way for me to really affect change. And then a couple things happened at OPPD. And and you know I had paid some attention to some other city council things, Omaha city council things previous to that, where I found myself spending so much time and energy changing or attempting to change the minds and influence the votes of one or two people. Just like hours upon hours of activating people and, you know, being on the street with a bullhorn and just like writing letters and going to meetings and making statements. And then I finally realized that I was just kind of bullshitting myself. Um, In that situation, the 
best way to affect change is to become the person making the decision rather than trying to influence the person making the decision. So that's, it was that realization when I kind of, it dawned on me that I was sort of lying to myself about it, that I realized, okay, my, it's, it's probably time for me to at least really seriously consider this. And, you know, quite honestly, the best advice that I got about running for office and considering that was think of, to think about it as a job interview. It's a job. And if you think that you're really well qualified for it and could do it well, then do it. Throw your name in the hat. See what happens. And OPPD in particular was a, was a space where because of a lot of my work at Bears Group, uh, I knew the energy industry extraordinarily well, um, or at least I thought I did. I've learned a heck of a lot since joining the board that I certainly didn't know. But that was the other thing that, that kind of got me going was, okay, one, I'm motivated um, to affect change. And, and two, this is a space that I'm pretty comfortable and knowledgeable. Um, and so those two things kind of, and again, put me in a position where I felt like I could do it. And again, you know, my, my amazing partner, Emily, was very supportive. And um, I would say the same thing I, I did about Paradise Group. I didn't know what I was getting into. If this is a job interview, then you did that interview with thousands of people over <laughs> yeah, several months. Right. So talk a little bit. Yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit just about what you had to do in the campaign. And then we can talk about what being an elected official really means. You know, candidates should really do be doing two things and two things only. They should be – and this is just – this. I don't necessarily like this, but this is just the way the campaigns work. Candidates should be raising money or talking to people that are going to vote. And that's it. To the extent that they're doing anything else, whatever that might be, walking in a parade, doing social media, managing a team, I mean, signing postcards, whatever it's going to be, putting a yard sign in a yard. Most of those other things um, are things that you should find somebody else to do. And, and that was a big learning moment for me. Um, but I didn't follow that guidance very strictly. And, and partly because I was just really interested and wanted, wanted to learn about the ins and outs of a campaign. I, I wanted to be involved. I, per, perhaps I was slightly controlling in my approach to it, I guess, and just wanted to be um, you know, involved in a lot of the stuff. But um, the campaign was simultaneously, you know, exhilarating and I was surrounded by people constantly and isolating, uh, you know, like it being the candidate is, is an experience like no other, uh, where no matter what, it comes back to you, period, full stop. Um, and, and that's, that's pretty isolating in some cases, even though, you know, you have people in your house two or three nights a week making phone calls. The extent to which people stepped up to help and volunteer was one of the single most heartwarming experiences of my life. Like that was amazing where people who I had barely known or never met before, you know, raised their hand and said, I want to help and I will, you know, do any number of things, spend, you know, spend six hours on a Saturday going with me, knocking on doors. It was cool, but it was, it was grueling. It was a grind. And um, it took its toll on, on, you know, me and the family and, and it made, you know, every, every other element of my life immensely harder. Uh, but I 
have no regrets about it. I mean, it was it was it was quite an experience. I mean, it, it's it's there's so many nuances to it, and there's so many factors that play into it. But the but the long and short of it is, it's it's like I said, it's an experience like no other that I don't regret a bit. I think for many people, politics looks like, feels like a dirty business. Yeah. And so tell me why, in your experience, being an elected official isn't like that. Well, I think it is in some cases. Um, you know, I mean, different people have different motivations for, for why they seek elected office. And, and, and I think on, on the whole, in most cases, they're generally pretty pure and well-intentioned and, uh, you know, intended to serve the public good and really be a public servant. Um, but not everybody, quite honestly. Um, in my situation, I think, you know, when people ask what it's like to be on the board, one of the thing that I say most often is that um, I'm really proud of the way that our board engages. Those eight people are universally... Uh, to a person really committed to doing what's best for the utility. And that's pretty cool. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. In some cases, I know whether or not they're a Republican or a Democrat, but not all. Uh, so we really show up in a way that's pointed at getting the organization to be as successful as possible and really doing the right thing and really engaging the discussion. I'm really honored to be the chair of the board right now um and it's a really fascinating time to be the chair of the board because we're not meeting together it's we're we've got virtual monthly eight-hour meetings uh, on webex and holy cow <laughs> um but people are really dialed in and committed to it and they stick with it and and there there are any number of things and activities that happen kind of between all of those meetings as well all of these discussions so because it's you know, everybody understands the importance of our work. And everybody understands that it is a, 
is an industry that's not used to change, but is going through fast, monumental change. And we got to make good decisions. Uh, so I think the level of commitment, the extent to which everybody is really focused on doing a really good job and not bring bringing politics into it in really any meaningful way is pretty cool. And it creates a pretty high level of functionality that, that makes it a real treat to be a part of. So you mentioned the implications of the pandemic. How do you think you would have campaigned now if you were running for OPPD like you did you know, four or five years ago? And how do you think our elected officials will go about the job of being uh, responsive to their uh, electorate? Well, from a campaign standpoint, it's really created a challenge for candidates. You know, like, again, the, the, the single best way to ensure that you're going to be successful is to just knock as many doors, to go talk to people on the front doorstep. And there's a meaningful question to be asked right now about whether or not that's appropriate. Um, so it's changed campaigns in a pretty meaningful way. Um, it's, it's hard for them to reach people. And, you know, phone banking is fun, but the reality is you can make 20 phone calls and get maybe one person to answer. So that's not super productive either. So it's hard as a candidate now. So it's definitely changed the way that campaigns are run. Um, in terms of how, you know, elected officials navigate a pandemic and what that means for them, I mean, I think the, the obvious answers are, one, the economic disaster that's we're sort of in the midst of and will have, you know, long lingering effects even after the pandemic and after we're back to, you know, an economy that's, that's at least back to some semblance of normal, normalcy. You know, people are going to be struggling for many years. Um, and that's definitely, you know, something that at OPPD we're very mindful of. Like that, that's probably the thing that we talk the most about now is what position do we need to take with respect to how we're going to help people. And we are absolutely committed to helping people um, through the pandemic. So the economic implications for any elected official are significant. Uh, budgets are broken everywhere. The city of Omaha's budget is in disarray. I mean, it's just, it's gonna be a challenge for a long time and there will be long lasting effects as well. On the other side of the coin, what it's honestly created though is us being forced to think about how we engage the public in ways that don't require that they be in the same room as us. And that's something that we had been talking about for quite a while, but never really prioritized fixing. And now we had, didn't have a choice. Um, so um, we have created mechanisms by which we can lawfully engage the public and allow them to essentially attend a board meeting virtually and provide comments. And so in August is going to be the first time where we will, we're going to get together physically as a board. We have to by law now but we're still gonna create and have opportunities for people to quote unquote attend virtually. And I think that's great. Like that's the, as, to the extent that we can eliminate as, as much friction as possible for people to engage their elected leaders, that's fantastic. And so hopefully that sticks, you know, like I hope that that's not something that we just, again, fall back into what we used to do. And I hope that, you know, we're committed, at least I as the chair am committed to making sure that that's the new normal 
And I hope that a lot of other elected boards create kind of, you know, again, reduce the barriers for people to participate. I hope that that's a, that's a meaningful outcome from all of this. You're not all there. <laughs> True. <laughs> I'd like to hear about your story about giving up uh, an organ yeah. f- uh, to your brother. Yeah, I gave up an organ. It was almost 10 years ago to the day. I mean, it, we're coming up on our 10-year anniversary. So, yeah, I mean, the, the quick story uh, is 10 years ago, my younger brother, he's, uh, uh, boy, is he six or seven years younger than I am? Uh, so my brother came down, uh, from Sioux Falls, South Dakota to Omaha in mid June to, uh, attend a bachelor party weekend and go to the college world series. Um, and he showed up, he didn't look good. He was just kind of like bloated and didn't, you know, he looked a little bit overweight, looked a little puffy. And we just were, my my wife and I were kind of like, well, he must've, he must've been drinking the night before or whatever. That's not a big deal. But you know, as we talked to him more and more, and this was, Emily had this conversation with him. I wasn't, I was at work, learned that he was having some health problems and, you know, um, his blood pressure was kind of off the charts high and, you know, he's getting some edema, some swelling that it was just really atypical. So we just were like, well, what's some, something's going on. And so, you know, again, I won't, I won't walk you through the whole story, but eventually he found his way to the med center, um, went through some testing um, and initially they thought he might be diabetic because, um, his urine samples came back with, I think it was maybe too much sugar. I don't, I'm not a health professional. I don't know these kinds of things, but that was the initial fear. And so Emily called me and said, get your butt home. Your brother's, you know, he's, he's pretty upset. So I had biked to work that day. So I, I biked home as fast as I could, um, and got together. And then eventually Emily, I think by the time I was biking home, she got a call from the physician that had seen him. Uh, who's a good family friend of ours. And she said, Hey, Emily, this is not good. I'm going to come over and talk to you guys. So she, she left her office and came over to talk to us. Um, and she said, you know, Brett, your kidneys aren't working. They've just completely failed. We don't know why we will, we'll, we'll, we'll endeavor to figure that out, but, but they don't work and it's extraordinarily dangerous. And she said, if you don't go to the hospital within the next hour or so, if you, if I, I, she said, I don't, I'm not sure that you won't have a heart attack soon. Um, so we went into the hospital. Um, he got, you know, started on dialysis as soon as they possibly could once he, once he was stable enough to do it. Um, and, you know, he spent the next three or four days in the hospital just kind of going through a lot of testing. They never really can, you know, concretely, concluded what the cause was um 
But anyway, so he spent, you know, the next several weeks with us, got started on dialysis in Omaha, eventually went back to Sioux Falls and, and tried to get back to, you know, as normal of a life as you can while you're on dialysis. And, uh, you know, I, I, that's a huge challenge uh, for anyone who's, who's going through that. We learned that really the, the, the best avenue for him to really kind of get back to a normal life was an organ transplant, a live organ transplant. Meanwhile, my wife at the time was due. So this was June, July. Our first baby was due in November. So my wife is, you know, in her second trimester. And so we were kind of faced with the question of, okay, well, who's the, who's, who's the donor going to be? And almost it's universally true. I, th- I think it's my understanding that siblings are the best donors because uh, they get the X and Ys from their parents, same people. Um, and my brother and I are the, of the five, we're the two boys and we've got three sisters. And this was the easiest big decision I've ever had to make where I was immediately like, it's me, test me as soon as you possibly can. What can I do to make this go as fast as humanly possible? So I got tested, genetic testing, match was good enough for us to move forward. And then just to pause you there. Yeah, sure. But you said it was the easiest big decision you've made. But you also just said that you're expecting your first child. Yeah, with your wife. I wasn't thinking much about the child. And so <laughs> it, it was your easiest big decision, but just a quick diversion back into your story. But what was that decision-making process like as a family? Well, it, I mean, I was pretty locked in. Um and and perhaps there's a theme here, but I hadn't really meaningfully worked my way through all of the potential uh, negative implications and risks, right? Like I was I was the brother who was the older brother who was like, I'm going to do everything I possibly can to make sure my brother's okay. And that that there ended the thought process. Naturally, Emily took that a few steps further and had um, at least some what I would call preliminary and temporary concerns where, you know, she was, she was kind of wondering, okay, what, well, what, what does this mean? And we're going to have a baby and what if, what if, what if it didn't take long for us to realize um, through just a little bit of learning about what the long-term implications were for me, that there are almost no negative consequences for, for my health. I, I've had a bike accident since then that have had much more severe consequences on my health my health quite honestly uh now with that said and again like taking the divergence a little bit further we didn't anticipate a pandemic Uh, and i don't know how my body would react if i were to contract covid so um we're taking we're we're taking the pandemic pretty seriously these days Uh, but by and large uh an organ donor a kidney donor has no negative long-term health implications. It's it. We just kind of learned that, and then it, it just became a question of. So back to back to the story, how fast can we possibly get this done so that we do it before the baby arrives? Like that became our single focus. So we were the squeaky wheel, you know, like at the med center. We were the people who said, "We are ready at a moment's notice." If you have a patient who is too sick to go on the operating table. We will drop everything and we will be there as soon as humanly possible. And so, you know, which is common, you know, because people who don't have kidney function are sick pretty often. So it played in our favor that my brother was young and still relatively healthy and I was completely healthy at the time. Um, So 
the the reality ended up being that between the from the day that he got diagnosed until the day we had surgery was almost exactly two months. That's un, that's unheard of in terms of like that pace. So yeah, it was. I mean, it was it was an amazing experience. Uh, it's it's <laughs> one that you know when I look back, I it's crazy, but I have fond memories of it, you know, like, um, I, I, my brother and I, after the surgery, we both recovered here at home. Uh, my wife took good care of us. Uh, you know, we, we, we got to hang out for two or three weeks together and just kind of recover and, and just kind of, you know, be brothers that didn't have anything to do other than kind of watch movies and shoot the and walk around the block and try and get better. And he's doing really well. I mean, we're, we're looking forward to celebrating our 10 year anniversary this month, which is, pretty cool to think about it's gone fast so just to close in and it seems wholly inappropriate to stay focused on your body um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't know how many people know that you can clap with one hand. Yes, I can. I don't quite know why you sound so proud of that, but because but, but explain have you this. ever met anyone who can cl- anyone else that can clap with one hand? This is really my only claim to fame at this point is that I don't know anyone else that can do that. And someday the world will know me because I can clap with one hand. I'm hanging on to that hope, Stuart. I'm glad we spent this conversation talking about you founding a business dedicated to making the planet a better place for everybody, serving the public with your position at OBPD, uh, giving up an organ to your brother, and this is what you plan to be remembered by. This is it. Yeah. My guest today has been Verdis Group co-founder and elected official with the Omaha Public Power District Board of Directors, Craig Moody. Craig, thank you for allowing me on your porch here, physically distanced, and thanks for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure, Stuart. Thanks for having me. I think I've got all I need. <laughs> <laughs> we can just end there. <laughs> oh, that's fun. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's radio show and podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.